Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. This growing spiral that you have to start somewhere and that helps you create a better story, gather more data, test your hypothesis, come back, many times learn from mistakes. The trust that we were able to develop caught the attention of the Kellogg Foundation and they invited us to submit a long-term proposal to address water issues in that region. I'm very pleased today to introduce Ferman Regadas. Ferman is the founder of Fondacion Cantaro Azul. Cantaro Azul helps rural Mexican communities to collect, purify, monitor and sell their own drinking water using self-sufficient water systems. It's developed a water purification system that's used by households and a model for larger scale community consumption. They've also developed a network of kiosk-based entrepreneurs and local communities. The goal is to use economically sustainable solutions that allow local entrepreneurs to enter the water purification market. It's excellent to have an opportunity to talk to you for inspiring social entrepreneurs. A good place to start might be, Fairman, is to just you tell me a little bit about your background and how you became a social entrepreneur. Yes, so I studied physics at the uh, Mexican National University, and the last year of, of physics I was able to come to the University of California in Berkeley through an exchange program. And when I was here, I got a little bit of you know melancholic uh, in terms of missing... Uh, missing the Mexican culture, and also I was exposed to like how you know I was exposed to to other disciplines as well, especially the social sciences. And uh, although I love physics, uh, it was also getting a little bit cold for me in the sense that it was too much math for for what I uh, really liked. And so I start to you know I that that was a moment where I uh, I really had to question what I was doing and to try to find something. Uh, more inspiring and, and less cold. And I was fortunate to find the Energy and Resources Group, which is an interdisciplinary uh, unit in the University of California that looks at uh, topics like climate change, renewable energy, and water, and, and you know tries to do research and develop solutions that uh, bridge disciplines. And so that that seemed like a, you know a, a good place for me to uh, you know to make this transition between physics and something more social and at the same and, and so I had to choose a topic and I come from the Baja California Peninsula it's the northwest of Mexico it's a very arid region uh, and it seemed like water you know especially lack of water would be a problem in that area so I work with other students and we went to find out how things were in the field and we visited 24 communities really remote communities that not you know, not many people had gone there to ask questions about water management and especially to to test water quality. And we found that, you know, most of the sources that people were using had uh, contamination, like fecal contamination, and thus, you know, that could be a venue for uh, transmission of diseases. Uh, the health ministry in, in that region of Mexico also identified gastrointestinal illness as the second cause of morbidity in the region. So, so when we when I came back to Berkeley, it seemed that that's something that we could do, you know, to try to find a solution. And I was fortunate to find a team that uh, had been designing an ultraviolet water disinfection system, and they were they had done all the laboratory tests, and, and they had validated it in the lab, and they were ready to, you know, to start some tests in the field. So so it was a great opportunity for me to, you know, to take on that, and I took on the responsibility of 
designing the user interface of the of the UV system, and also of setting up uh, another uh, multidisciplinary team to go back to these rural communities that we had visited and see if this could be a good solution for people. And so that's that's really how things got started. The reception of the the, the people that we work with in these rural communities when we uh, implemented the first prototype, they uh, they were very excited about this technology. It helped them uh, get access to safe water without the burdensome of boiling water or or without the bad taste of chlorine. So so we found like this huge potential, and we thought that you know this could be a solution that many that could benefit many many more communities. And one of the things that we tried to do was to we had a one of our team members was from the business school and and we tried to look for other organizations or companies or government entities that could take our prototype and turn it into a a real solution and scale it and and we were you know we we're not very lucky we we didn't find entities that were interested or had the capacity of doing that so that also created some inspiration for my co-founder Ian Balam and me to start an organization take on this challenge and work uh, you know, form an organization based in Mexico that, that could have its roots in the rural communities and represent the, the needs and opportunities in these communities and work in a partnership with the University of California in Berkeley uh, to design you know, comprehensive and effective solutions that could be scaled. And that's how, how we got started on Cantar Azul. Excellent. Obviously, you're bringing together, you know, the, the universities and your own experience and uh, people on the ground and so forth. I mean, what is it that is distinctive about your approach? I think the key thing in our approach has been to be able to combine the strengths of the university with also the strengths of having an organization uh, based on the ground. And, and you know, I'm, I'm finishing my PhD now in Berkeley, uh, several years after I co-founded Cantar Azul. And during this time, we were able to tap into an ecosystem that combined the classroom. And, you know, the classroom really expanded our knowledge uh, it helped us generate a lot of ideas on how to solve issues that are facing uh, the, the issues that people are facing around the world, uh, but, but allows to combine the classroom with research. And an important thing of research is that you can use research to take ideas and to really test them, whether in the lab or in the field, polish them and make them really effective. And furthermore, you know, com we combine that classroom research with practice. So the fact that I uh, I was doing my PhD at the same time that I was uh, working directly in Cantar Azul. That helped us really enrich uh, the research, and also the research helped us really enrich our practice in Cantar Azul and the solutions that we were developing. And, and so there were, there were several students and several people that have worked in Cantar Azul that, that created this ecosystem, and, and that I, I feel like that has been unique in our case. Um, it also... I mean, we were able to do this also because of uh, changes that have been occurring at universities that give, you know, more tools to students uh, to take on these global challenges. Uh, for example, the Blum Center for Developing Economies here in Berkeley, the Big Ideas Competition, they provide direct resources to students to, to work on these type of issues. And, and so that really helped us uh, you know, to strengthen this ecosystem and and and, and do you know and, and develop the solutions that we have been able to develop for households, communities, and schools. And I want to add that this ecosystem is particularly important in the in the water sector because uh, it's a really complex sector in the sense that water touches all aspects of our life, 
And so if you develop a solution that is only technical, it's unlikely to be really effective. And, and if you, uh, even if you are able to provide access to safe water, you know, if people don't drink that water all the time or if they don't have adequate hygiene and adequate sanitation, it's unlikely that you're going to reach the health impact that you're looking for. So in these you know, complex scenarios, being able to combine research and practice has been crucial to develop effective solutions. You mentioned it's a complex problem um, and there, there are different organizations working on different aspects of water, sanitation um, and so forth. Technically, is there something distinctive about what you do? We, you know, we recognize that people in rural communities value water through different dimensions. And what I mean by this is that uh, you know, they, people are interested not only in the quality of water from like a microbiological perspective, they're actually more interested in the temperature of the water, you know, to see if water is fresh or not. The, the taste of the water, uh, people can really tell the difference between water from one community and another, and that, that creates an identity on them. Um, also, in many of the places where we work, people store water in containers uh, that are made out of clay, pottery, or rocks. And these containers have become part of their traditions. They're usually given to them as a present uh, from another relative. And so when you put all of these things together, you know, if you come in and see water from only one perspective, let's say a technical perspective, and you introduce a technology, it's very unlikely that people will adopt that technology and use it continuously. So very early on in our work in, in Mexico and also Sri Lanka, uh, we identify uh, that that the people on the ground were valuing water through all of these dimensions, and and we have used that to create a um, household water treatment system that that has some aesthetic components as well, and that it's more effective in competing with existing ways of managing water that are not that safe. So I feel like that has been something that has been very distinct from other uh, organizations that are working in the field, and uh, also to contrast, for example, with. Uh, with most government organizations that work in the water sector. Our team, like Cantaro Sula, I really want to give credit to our team because they are, they're passionate about creating change in, in people's lives and working together with people to, you know, to develop solutions. And, and that's something that you don't see a lot in, in larger uh, government organizations. You know, usually people, I mean, there, there's, there are some passionate people that I have great respect for, but in general, um, working in rural areas is not seen as something that they're that excited about, and they don't spend enough time to understand uh, how you know how's life in these communities and, and why is it so difficult to boil water or to chlorinate water, and and so this kind of sometimes this lack of empathy from professionals in the sector, I believe that has led to programs that are not that effective or that are not that appropriate or suitable for people in rural communities. You mentioned the fact that you you work closely with the, the people in the local community. How has that helped you? Well, the, the first example that I can give you is when we were designing our UV disinfection system here in Berkeley. Uh, we were able to come up with a user interface that, that we thought that was appropriate. And in UV disinfection, as in, you know, in most water other te- in, in most of other water technologies, you really have to include also a safe storage container. So we decided to use a container that it's uh, widely uh, used in Mexico. It's called the Garrafon, this 20-liter plastic container uh, that people in urban areas, uh, they buy bottled water in it. And so it has, this, it has created this perception that that water is safe. So when we brought it to rural communities, we were 
uh, it, it was a right uh, choice. Like, you know, it was very well accepted uh, when we introduced it. And people were drinking water from, you know, they, they were using their UV disinfection system. They were storing water in these 20 uh, liter containers that keep water safe. But then when the summer kicked in, the water started getting warm in these containers in comparison to water that they store in their traditional containers. And, and so by working with, I mean, uh, 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 just an example of this is that uh, our, our, our solution started to fail because people were not drinking uh, disinfected water anymore and they were reverting to their previous uh, traditions or storage containers. But one woman, you know, that from the community, uh, she, she gave us the tip, you know, that she used to uh, give her husband water in like a one gallon container uh, when he went to look for goats on his mule and uh, and that gallon would get really warm so uh, her idea was to wrap this gallon with a cloth like the neem cloth and get it wet and then by evaporative cooling that would keep the water cool so we took her idea and and now all of our uh, storage containers are wrapped with this the neem cloth that that people wet in the morning and keeps water as cold as their, you know, previous containers, and that has like dramatically changed the the success of our technology. So that has, you know, that's a that's a that's a small example that happened earlier on. But also in in some communities, uh, we work with committees that have been already established and and that use a lot of uh, traditional uh, forms of organization in communities, and then uh, by by tapping into these local organizations. We're able to provide services that are that reach more houses, that are more effective, and and we also get a lot of feedback from from the committees themselves on how we can improve our programs and our technologies for other communities. Uh, but but in some other communities, you know, to be frank, uh, there's little social cohesion and there's no institutional support. So so we have had trouble working with committees, and so we have been moving in those areas. We have been creating a, a model that uses uh, a social franchise. So for those communities with lack of social cohesion and institutional support, uh, we have created a hybrid model of a social franchise that uh, works with local entrepreneurs to provide uh, safe water services. And what this hybrid model does is that it aligns the economic incentives that local entrepreneurs have for providing a, a water service. And so by aligning these two, we can uh, ensure that our our programs are really having an impact on health, which is our important outcome. That's very innovative, this franchising system. So you work with local entrepreneurs. Um, who who? How does that work? So when we were doing our work with the committees, we found that they could be really effective when you ha have the right conditions of institutional support and social cohesion. But in many of the marginalized communities where we work, those conditions do not exist. So when we started looking at how entrepreneurs provide their water services, we also found that uh, it was unlikely that they would be reaching the poorest households in the community. They tend to price their service just below other alternatives. And that's not low cost enough for the most marginalized households to, you know, to be able to pay for that water. So what this hybrid model does is that we're able to tap into the entrepreneurial spirit and to tap into their economic incentives. But we align that with certain mechanisms, like putting a cap on the price uh, to you know, ensure that even the families that have least income can still 
uh, access these type of services. So in, with this franchise, uh, we're able to create a membership service that gives families uh, coupons for certain number of days when they don't have cash, they can still get access to water. How widespread is this system? I mean, ha- have you run it in certain cities or is it in one area? Or We have worked with this Save Water Kiosk uh, model, which we call Nuestra Agua, in over 30 rural communities in Mexico, in several different states. Um, however, most of them have been operated by communities. So now we have, we, we launched the, the franchise model six months ago, and now we have eight franchisees that are already offering their services. And, and the results have been very good, and we're moving into a phase of strengthening the franchise model, and then uh, moving into a scaling up uh, operations. Our goal for, for the next two to three years is to be able to reach 200 franchisees that will be providing uh, a safe water service to about 100,000 people. And this, this number of 200 franchisees is also important for us because it allows us to, uh, to break even in terms of the, the income of the franchise. And, and we are, we are a non-profit, but you know, once we, we reach this break even point, we'll be able to access other financing mechanisms that will help us scale uh, to even, you know, to even larger numbers, which, which is what we're really looking for in the, in the next, you know, five to seven years. Uh, try to reach uh, one one million people. You mentioned there the access to funding mechanisms and so forth. I mean, how have you been funded so far? Initially, Cantaro Azul was funded mostly through grants that came through UC Berkeley. And that was great because it allows us to focus on learning what worked in the field and what didn't work. Uh, then uh, we went through a phase where most of our funding came from the United Nations Development Program. And now we have uh, a big grant from uh, the Kellogg Foundation. Uh, we also have the support from Ashoka that is really helping us uh, strengthen our organization. Uh, we have another project with the Inter-American Development Bank. And, and we are, you know, and we're looking for funding from different uh, organizations to strengthen the franchise model and also to uh, for the scaling up of our household disinfection system model as well. Wow, that's quite a, a range of support. I mean, how have you done that? What, what have you learned about getting financial support? What I learned is that you have to start somewhere. So, you know, during the first summer that we were doing this type of work, uh, we went to events of UC Berkeley alumni and, and we told them the ideas that we had. And, and, you know, and we were fortunate that one of them, for example, uh, donated his uh, frequent airline miles to allow our team to fly to Mexico, and others made smaller donations. But once you know we went and did that work in the field, we were able to come back with even a better story and with data that that gave us much more credibility. And and, and so with that we started this ladder where you know, which each year we're able to access uh, more and more funding and. And so, you know, many of the new projects have opened other doors that, that were difficult for us to access before then. So, so it's this, you know, in a way, this growing spiral that you have to start somewhere and that helps you create a better story, gather more data, test your hypothesis, come back, many times learn from mistakes. Is there anything you do different from what you've learned now? I mean, you've obviously spoken to many different kinds of funding organizations. Would you do things differently now? In the case of Mexico, 
the the government has enough resources to uh, fund safe water services, and and we haven't really been able, we haven't been very successful in terms of tapping into these resources. So so we're now moving into a phase where we have to increase our network with government officials and to also change our discourse, which has been fine-tuned for foundations and other international agencies, but has not necessarily uh, you know, been that well-received with the government. So, uh, so that's Something that we haven't successfully done, but but we need to work in terms of being able to get more uh, grants and services from the government. Right, right. I'm with you. Um, and um, clearly, you you know you've been on a journey. Um, what what have been some of the biggest challenges you've had to face? One of the big challenges in this sector is that we're really trying to reach the families that have the lowest income. So we're in this situation where ideally we would develop services that would be paid by the end users. That would make us more responsive to them, would provide more downward accountability, and we could be more strategic. On the other hand, there's the government, which I mentioned that, you know, could could fund many of these programs. But sometimes with real money in the government, it also comes with problems related to corruption and also politicization of the programs. Uh, so we have you have to be very careful in terms of accessing those funds. What would you do differently today? When we develop our first UV disinfection prototype, and, and we we did some work in terms of finding out if there were other organizations that could take our prototype and develop, turn it into a, a full blown solution. And I we decided to start our organization, and I think that has been great. It has been the most interesting period of my professional life. And I have learned a lot by taking on this challenge of starting a new organization. Uh, but I, I think if I were to go back in time, I think I would look a little bit harder to see if there were other organizations, maybe in different geographical areas, that we could have tapped into and, and strengthen their existing water programs. But that's always a difficult question because by, you know, by going into an existing organization that might have that might have more reach and might have solved other financial or organizational problems, you will give up a little bit or significantly on the on the freedom of choosing what's really important. And so there's a really difficult balance to strike. And I don't know what would have happened if we have found another organization instead of starting our own. Uh, but that's something I, I think I would like to have explore a little bit more uh, before taking the decision. One thing that we would have done differently is when we started, we felt a little bit comfortable in terms of funding because we had grants from UC Berkeley that allow us to pursue our passion and to really understand what were the problems in rural areas and and come up with solutions for them. But but that funding uh, made that we were not forced to develop networks, for example, with the government or with other local entities. And in retrospect, I think uh, if I could go back in time, from the very beginning, I would also uh, start to create those networks. Because creating a network takes time, and then it can... Uh, but, 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 it, but it can be critical at a moment. Once you have your solution that is you know, ready to, to be scaled, if you don't have those networks, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to 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 bring it up to 
the people that you were uh, hoping to reach. So, so I think in our Cancantaro Sul, uh, we were effective in designing and testing different solutions and validating them in the field, but it has taken us much more than we wanted in terms of bringing them up to scale. And partly has been because from the start, we didn't create the right uh, network, especially with the government and with other local actors. That's something that comes up again and again. Uh, if there's a particular status quo, there are often different actors who benefit from the situation, as it were, you know, or shall we say, who who may not be inclined to see change. <laughs> and also, this question of building trust with local organisations seems to be very, very important. I mean, how do you go about that? What steps do you do now in terms of building relationships and trust? So when we started our community kiosk model, we we were funded by the United Nations Development Program in Mexico. And, and we were working in four different states. And so it was hard for us to have a base, you know, and, and we were making tons of progress in very small amount of time. Uh, we, you know, we iterated through several technological designs and also through several models to manage and operate these kiosks. Uh, but because we were not centered in one area, when our funding ended, you know, we were basically left to like start again from zero. And we were fortunate that we were able to keep uh, the leader of that program in our organization with additional funding. And we chose a strategic area where we felt that we could have the most impact. And for a year, we really hit the pause button in terms of installing new system. Uh, for a year, her main responsibility was to go and knock on the doors of different organizations in that region, establish trust, um, and engage, you know, in these in-depth conversations with them to to really construct what Cantalosul could offer to the communities in that region and to the other organizations that were, you know, that had been working there for decades. Uh, and but that really paid off. Uh, that the trust that we were able to develop caught the attention of the Kellogg Foundation, and they invited us to submit a long-term proposal to address water issues in that region in collaboration with organizations that are trying to improve the the health and nutrition of children. And and so that that was like a really good bet from our side in terms of uh, hitting the pause button in terms of the technological and management uh, progress that we were making with our solutions and to invest time into the uh, into the institutional network, to, to develop a strong institutional network that now is allowing us to make much more progress. Right, right, I'm with you. You mentioned Ashoka. I know being a social entrepreneur can be a quite a lonely experience as, at times. How has Ashoka helped you and have you had help from other kinds of supporting organizations like that along the way? So I was recently uh, selected as an Ashoka Fellow, so I'm, I'm new to the network. But I can already start to see you know, the benefits of, of being part of a group instead of being you know, uh, an organization that is kind of more isolated and that it's trying to, to solve problems on its own. So, yes, especially for me and my co-founder, we, we started Cantar Azul right after finishing our master's study. We had very little experience working in, an, uh, working in companies or non-profit organizations or the government. So we felt like 
I mean, the first years felt like, felt like we were reinventing the wheel, and, and that took a lot of our time. Uh, instead of focusing on our time in developing the solutions that we that we believed that were important. Uh, now that I'm part of the Hashoka Network, like it's it's really inspiring because you get to meet people that have you know taken paths similar to yours, and and you can learn so much by their experiences really really fast, and and also they can you know learning that they have also gone through a lot of struggles like you and and uh, it also gives a lot of inspiration and motivation and opens uh, new opportunities for work. Uh, I recently met Peter Bloom, the founder, uh, co-founder of, of an organization in Mexico that is working with rural communities to ensure that they have access to uh, cellular communication. And, and you can see the synergies between our water kiosks and, and the communication uh, networks that they're establishing. And so this, you know, this opens so, so many new opportunities to have a more comprehensive and holistic approach towards improving the lives of people in rural communities. Right, right. That, 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 that's interesting because there does seem to be a lot of potential for uh, social entrepreneurs to work together in specific areas. Not always taken advantage of, I think. Um, what, what about having a mentor along the way? somebody to help you make decisions and things like that. Have you had some supporters like that? So that's another area that I wish we had invested more initially. So when my co-founder and I started Cantar Azul, we decided to keep uh, the board of directors to, you know, only the two of us with the idea that that would give us more flexibility and that we could move faster, uh, especially in the initial stages. Also because... You know, in comparison to like starting a company, initially you might fear that you might lose control if you increase in the number of members in your board. Uh, whereas in a company, you can increase the number of members of the board, but you know, uh, if you have enough voting shares, you can still retain uh, some some control on the vision and the mission of the of the company. And so I felt like we were late in bringing other other board members to our organization. And, and I started noticing that because as our programs grew, also our challenges, especially you know, internal institutional challenges, but also uh, this, this thing of like not having enough, not being able to tap into networks outside of our own, like for example, the, the government network or the political network. Um, so now, uh, now we have uh, two other board members with very different backgrounds, and that has been great. While being at UC Berkeley, I have participated in a couple of programs that provide some mentorship uh, to to entrepreneurs. But but you know some of these programs, well, these programs are relatively new, and some of their mentors are from different sectors. You know, here in the close to Silicon Valley, many of the mentors have expertise on things that are completely different from you know, providing a service as complex as water in rural communities where people have very limited income. So although I have learned a lot from these mentors and I really appreciate you know, the, the time and passion they have devoted, uh, I mean, we have been able to strengthen our organization, but, but it has also made me wish you know, to have more mentors from, from areas closer to the work that we do. And so now with Ashoka, being able to 
engage with other social entrepreneurs working in similar sectors and in the same region, uh, that has really served as, although they're my colleagues, you know, you know, I, I, I see them, I see these relations as turning into provide, providing the type of advice that I was looking from other mentors before. What inspires you? You know, the great opportunity that exists in terms of significantly transforming the lives of millions of people in rural areas. And what motivates me is to, through this work, be able to spend time with these fascinating and, and wonderful people that have very rich cultures and, and that I learn so much from them. So this combination of inspiration and motivation is what really drives me in the work that I do in Cantara Sur. Excellent. And what is your vision over the next three years? Where do you want to be? Our vision is to provide the service of safe water to one million people in the next five to seven years. And we, we plan to accomplish that by creating models that can work in diverse communities, you know, in communities that have very good organization where we can tap into that organization and, and be able to provide uh, magnificent services to everyone in the community, but also to work with governments that they are already providing some water services that have certain deficiencies and that I believe that we can work with these entities to improve the, the efficacy of their, of their systems. And finally, uh, in areas where there's no social cohesion or institutional support, they develop a really strong model that taps into local entrepreneurship, uh, but that makes that entrepreneurship have a real social impact. It's a great vision, Berman, and I wish you the best of success with, with it all. Um, and thank you very much for your time. It's been great to talk to you, Berman. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.